During the 1971-72 academic year at Columbia University, I served as a two-thirds full-time lecturer at the university's Graduate School of Library Service, SLS, teaching courses in the literature of the humanities, a subject of which I was perfectly innocent of any information whatsoever, and in descriptive bibliography. I had been brought onto the school's faculty at short notice the previous winter because of the illness of Professor Alan Hazen, who had taught these courses at the school for many years. Hazen retired at the end of the 71-72 year, and in the spring of 1972, I was offered a full-time appointment as assistant professor to begin with the 72-73 academic year. I celebrated my new appointment by asking the dean of the School of Library Service, Richard Darling, for space in the fifth floor Butler Library quarters of the school for a laboratory press to be used to support courses I proposed to teach, not only in descriptive bibliography, but in other aspects of the history of books and printing and related fields. Richard Darling turned over to me an unused office within the dean's suite of offices at the school, and so was the Book Arts Press born 25 years ago. Along with my appointment as assistant professor at SLS came a brief to develop a master's level rare book program for the school. The early history of the Book Arts Press and the history of the rare book program at SLS are thus inextricably entwined since the press was founded quite specifically to support the rare book program. In order to understand the reasons why the Book Arts Press developed the way it did, you need to know something about the way the rare book program developed. So please bear with me while I delve deep into Columbia history. At the time of the Book Arts Press's birth in 1972, there were only two regularly scheduled courses at the school directly relating to rare books. The history of the book, taught in the fall and the spring semester by Susan Otis Thompson, (coughs) as well as in the summer terms by various adjunct professors, and a fall semester doctoral level course in rare book curatorship taught by Kenneth A. Loff, librarian for rare book and manuscript libraries at Columbia. This level of rare book activity was typical of the larger American library schools of the early 1970s. There were no very well-developed programs in rare book librarianship, nor indeed had there ever been such a program in the United States. But a number of library schools mounted individual courses in rare book curatorship and related subjects, and most of them had at least a one-semester course in the history of the book to offer their students in the name of general background and cultural enrichment. The Columbia School of Library Service was, by library school standards, a big operation in the early 1970s. SLS annually admitted nearly 200 new full-time equivalents to its master's to its master's degree program, and there were more than 400 students in the master's program as a whole. In 72-73 alone, for example, Susan Thompson had a total of 103 different students in her History of the Book course. The School of Library Service substantially revised its master's degree curriculum in 1974, introducing a core component and lowering the total number of required courses from seven of 12 needed for graduation to three. This revision was a necessary precondition for developing programs in special fields of any kind at the School of Library Service. Once it was made, a program in rare books emerged rapidly. 
In the spring of 1972, Ken Loft's course in rare book curatorship moved from the fall to the spring term, converted to a master's level course in the spring of 1975. It was taught by Loft through 1981, then by Gerald Gottlieb of the Morgan Library, and finally by William Joyce of Princeton. I expanded my descriptive bibliography course to two semesters in 1973. G. Thomas Tansel left the English Department of the University of Wisconsin in 1978 to become vice president of the Guggenheim Foundation in New York City. He began teaching courses in bibliography and scholarly editing in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Columbia in the fall of 1980. As had been the case a decade earlier, when Alan Hazen taught these courses in the English department at Columbia, they were well populated by library school students. A group of related special programs at SLS emerged during the 70s and 80s. In 1983, offerings and archives were expanded to a three-semester sequence, for example. Paul Banks came to SLS in 1981 to establish a well-funded program in conservation and preservation administration. He was assisted by Gary Link Frost, who taught courses in the conservation program's new laboratories across campus at Skirmahorn Extension. By the mid-1980s, what came to be known as a die-hard rare book type emerged at Columbia. A die-hard rare book type could adopt a master's program, which could include up to nine courses, which might include the history of the book with Susan Thompson, descriptive bibliography with me, an introduction to bibliography with Tom Tansel, introduction to archives, Susan Davis and Robert Sink, course in preservation administration taught by Paul Banks, topics in bibliography taught by me, scholarly editing taught by Tansel, an archival internship, Davis and Sink, rare book curatorship, Bill Joyce, archival administration, Bill Joyce, and rare book cataloging field work, a course taught from the collections of the Grolier Club by Marion Schild, a retired principal cataloger of the Library of Congress. That was the golden age of the rare book program at Columbia. The principle governing the development of the rare book program in the 70s and 80s was a simple one, to teach the book and to encourage the teaching of the book as a physical object. The program emphasized format and collation, the history of typography, the recognition of illustration processes, the dating and localization of binding styles. In short, it dealt with books as things you can pick up and hold in your hand. Its major pedagogical preoccupation was quite literally to rub students' noses in books, to find ways to study the physical book directly from books and not merely from reproductions of them via illustrations in other books on books or via 35-millimeter slides or films or photocopies or videotapes or other facsimile formats. Now, the best way to teach books is physical objects is to have a lot of books around to teach with. A difficult matter to arrange with rare books because of the scarcity, fragility, and replacement value of these objects, especially at Columbia, where in 1972 the rare book department of the Columbia University Libraries was not equipped, either psychologically or as regards space, <laughs> for dealing effectively with large groups of students. Hence the need for an independent SLS Bibliographical Laboratory, and thus indeed the birth of the Book Arts Press itself. Opening day equipment at the Book Arts Press 
included two 19th century iron presses lent to us by the Columbia University Library's rare book department, along with a supply of type, mostly vice-Roman in various text and display sizes, a legacy from a previous German-influenced Columbia Book Arts Press of the 1930s and 40s. The present Book Arts Press is, in fact, the second of that name. Helmut Lehmannhaupt and other members of the rare book department that he directed in the Columbia University Libraries established the first Book Arts Press in about 1934. It seems to have died a slow death, breathing its last gasp in 1948, when incoming Columbia University President Dwight David Eisenhower pulled proofs of a prayer written for the occasion and set in Vice Roman on the 1830 tabletop imperial press used both by Lehmannhaupt's old and my revived Book Arts Press for many years. A talented group of current and recently graduated students at SLS known as the Printers of the Book Arts Press helped set up and maintain the press room during the press's early years. This group included Grace Ann and Robert DeCandido, Abigail Lewis, later Sanner, John Peters, Rachel Senner, later Van Wingen, Barbara Sutherland, Doris Ann Sweet, Irene Titchener, and Peter Van Wingen. Abby Sanner, Doris Ann Sweet, Irene Titchener, and Rachel Senner Van Wingen were in this audience three weeks ago when I gave the Book Arts Press 19, when I gave the Rare Book School 1997 week one version of this speech. It was good to meet some very old friends again. But back at the beginning in 1972, the Book Arts Press had space and some equipment, but according to its original agreement with Dean Richard Darling, no money whatsoever for operational expenses. For years, the printers of the Book Arts Press raised money for paper, ink, and type by a variety of activities ranging from raffles of the new compact edition of the Oxford English Dictionary to the sale of Christmas cards. In the fall of 1973, for example, the printers printed and sold more than 300 dozen Christmas cards at $2.50 a dozen. The Book Arts Press's first major gift came in 1974 when the late Baltimore printer, now late Baltimore printer, Maurice Annenberg, donated more than 50 fonts of wood type. They have been a constant companion of those of you in Nicholas Pickwood's course in the studio this week in the case in the back of the room under where the clock used to be before we stole it. In the summer of 1975, the press moved to larger quarters in the fifth floor of Butler Library, and in 1977, we acquired through the generosity of the Longuth Foundation an 1885 Washington-style Vasil flatbed press, much bigger than our old ones. It had a 19 by 26 inch platen, and it immediately became the workhorse of the Book Arts Press Iron Fleet, and remained so until we gained access to Clint Sisson's full-sized reproduction of a common wooden press, the one that we've been playing with in the front lobby of Alderman Lobby all of this week. The Vasil, which served as an elaborate sort of coffee table in previous rare book schools in the general direction of the sink, is now off on loan to the McGuffey Arts of the Book Center in downtown Charlottesville. One of the first printing projects of the Book Arts Press, undertaken when the press was only a few months old, was a poster and great work we made of it, too, announcing Michael Turner's November 1972 lecture on the John Johnson collection of printed ephemera in the Bodleian Library, Oxford University, of which he was then curator. 
This was Bookhart's press lecture number one, and you saw it perhaps on Monday, and you can see it still in one of the exhibition cases in the rotunda in the current exhibition, Devil's Toy Shop, the teaching resources of the Bookhart's press. At first, the procession of Bookhart's press lectures was a fairly stately one, since funding was dependent for each occasion on an ad hoc appeal to the dean of the school. Once the Friends of the Book Arts Press began to subsidize these lectures, the tempo quickened. In 1976, there were four Book Arts Press lectures. In 1978, there were eight. In 1980, there were 15. In 1982, there were 22. Were all of these lectures worth the trouble they took to organize and print posters for? You can imagine that I had a meditation on that on Monday. We did have our disasters, I shall always remember the speaker who told his audience after half an hour of insufferable twaddle. There's only ten minutes more, he said. (laughs) For the most part, however, the quality of lectures was good. And in any event, what our lecturers had to say was far less important, at least to me, than what they had to see. Well, here, lecturers typically visited the Book Arts Press Room and its constantly expanding teaching collections. They caught up with other news about the SLS Rare Book Program, and they routinely served thereafter as informal ambassadors for the program. The more so when SLS was only one stop on an American lecture tour, which in a number of cases was undertaken at our instances, at our instance and under our auspices. Other speakers tended to take our posters advertising their Book Arts Press lectures home, and you've seen many of the ones which could, I think, at least fairly be described as good, earnest work in the exhibition on Monday, especially the more outrageous or amusing ones. Sometimes they even had them framed and hung in their office walls, thereby further spreading the word about the existence of the Book Arts Press and the Rare Book Program at Columbia. The establishment of Rare Book School in 1983 expanded the lecture schedule into the summer months as well as the fall and winter terms, and the pace of lectures stepped up again. In 1984, we sponsored the frightful total of 39 public lectures, 18 of them during a single 36-day period. 39 lectures, 39 posters, 39 receptions, 39 dinners. Over the years, it gradually emerged that there would invariably be wine, fig bars, and three-ring pretzels available for consumption during the receptions that followed Book Arts Press Lectures. No one can remember why. (laughs) After the mad high point of 1984, the yearly lecture average dropped back to a saner low 20s that it has remained ever since. Roger Stoddard's lecture in week four earlier this week is Book Arts Press lecture number 400, as you know. But the number of different Book Arts Press speakers, about 225 of them, is substantially smaller because so many of them have spoken here more than once. In 1985, Michael Winship delivered the first Saul M. Malkin Lecture in Bibliography given in honor of Saul M. Malkin, uh, the founder and with his wife, Marianne O'Brien Malkin, longtime editor of A.B. Bookman's Weekly. Winship's lecture on Herons, on Hermann Ernst Ludwig, America's Forgotten Bibliographer, was elegantly printed by the Steinhauer Press and published by the Book Arts Press in 1986. 
Mary Ann Malkin was in residence for most of Rare Book School 1997. Many of you will have met her earlier in this week. Michael Winship is in residence this week teaching his celebrated Rare Book School course in the 19th century American book, just as he has been every year since 1983. Next year he gets his 15-year pin. (laughs) Two years after its founding in 1972, the Book Arts Press was finally in a financial position to put in a substantial order for text-size printing type, 14-point monotype Caslon in sorts, from Pat Taylor's out-of-sorts letter foundry, an event which enabled the establishment of regular laboratory sessions in hand composition and printing in my descriptive bibliography classes. Thereafter, as the resources of the Book Arts Press developed, these lab sessions expanded and by the early 1980s, a regular routine had emerged. There were usually about 30 students taking my fall course in descriptive bibliography. I broke them down into three class sessions so that I could fit each section of 10 or so students around the big table in the press room for a weekly class. I also divided them into five or six lab groups of about five students each and met with each group for an additional weekly session. This meant that my students saw me in class twice a week for a total of four hours two hours in a formal session, and two hours of lab at the Book Arts Press. And it meant that I saw my students in class for 16 or 18 hours a week, three formal class sections plus five or six lab groups. By usual academic standards, this is a heavy teaching load, the more so in that I was concerned with a number of other courses besides descriptive bibliography at the time, notably the SLS core course. But this schedule did ensure that I got to know my students quite well, quite quickly, generally a difficult thing to do in a one-year master's program, especially in a school that had 400 students. In the second semester of my two-semester descriptive bibliography class, the same class bus lab pattern continued, though attrition typically reduced the number of students in the class from the low 30s to the low 20s, enabling a reduction of from three to two class sections per week and also a reduction of lab groups from six to four reducing my weekly teaching load for these courses from 18 hours a week to 12 hours a week. Welcome relief at this point, because by then students would be, got, would be starting to need individual counseling, especially as regards their search for a professional position. There were, many, there were many individually outstanding students in the rare book program throughout the 1970s, 80s, and early 1990s, and many noteworthy classes. Luckily, the most remarkable class that of 1974-75, came at the most opportune time for the success of the rare book program, early on. In the spring of 75, the job market in rare books was in ruins. Few library employers were able to persuade themselves that the lush funding of the 1960s would ever return. But there are always jobs for competent persons. Here are the names of some of the students in the 1974-75 descriptive bibliography classes and where they began their professional career, and where they now are. John Bidwell began at the Chapin Library, Williams College, now Curator of Graphic Arts at the Princeton University Library. Victor Cardell began in the Music Library at Cornell, is now the Music Librarian at the University of Kansas. Jeffrey Kamovitz, then and now Curator of the Watkinson Library at Trinity College, Hartford. Clark Kimball, first a cataloger at the Morgan Library, now an antiquarian bookseller in Santa Fe. Kurt Meyer, then and now cataloger, German 
language specialist at the Library of Congress. Lucy Marks began as a rare book cataloger at Yale, now rare book cataloger for Oberlin College and also at Drew University in New Jersey. <coughs> Excuse me. Bruce McKittrick started at William Allen Rare Books, now the proprietor of his own antiquarian bookselling firm in Marlborough, Pennsylvania. Charles McNamara, rare book librarian at the University of Rochester, now curator of printed books at the University of North Carolina. Mary Malenke started at the detailed collection of the Payne Whitney Clinic, New York Hospital, now at the New York Academy of Medicine. Alice Schreier began in the rare book department at Columbia, now curator of special collections at the University of Chicago. Samuel Streit began as archivist of the City University of New York, now associate university librarian for special collections at Brown University. Other students in this year included Inga DuPont, then on leave from the Manuscript Department of the Royal Library of Copenhagen, now at the Pierpont Morgan as head of reader services. Richard Marcus, now at the National Archives. Pamela Spence Richards, then Pamela Smith, now a professor in the School of Communication, Information, and Library Studies at Rutgers. Caroline Schimmel, then Caroline Hover, sometime executive secretary of the Bibliographical Society of America. All of them were at the School of Library Service in my rare book classes in the same year, 1974-75. Several other descriptive bibliography classes stand out, that of 75-76, for example, the next year, which included Ruth Ann Evans, Donald Farron, Bennett Gilbert, James Green, Dennis Landis, Jennifer Lee, Nora Quinlan, and Daniel Traster. But the class of 74-75 was not only the first class to achieve a clutch of stylish placements, but also the first to have regularly scheduled laboratory sessions in the book arts press. And from that year, the rare book program may be said to have had more than a purely local reputation. The Friends of the Book Arts Press came into existence in the fall of 1976 in order to support the rare book program of this school. The Friends tended to be persons who had no obvious connection to Columbia University, but who were willing to support the cost of rare book education in the United States with gifts of money and in kind. The group began small. There were only 16 friends at the end of the first year and 130 five years later, but growth was steady. At the moment, there are 600 and something friends of the Book Arts Press who pay $30 a year to uh, sit on our A mailing list and receive the Book Arts Press Christmas card, which is not like other people's Christmas cards, and the Book Arts Press Valentine, which is not like other people's Valentines. And there are more than 200 close friends of the Book Arts Press and a good many best friends of the Book Arts Press as well. It is no secret to those of you who have been around here for any length of time that Rare Book School always loses money, on occasion quite a bit of it. More than a fourth of the 383 persons associated with Rare Book School this year also attended Rare Book School last year, and more than half of you have attended Rare Book School at one time or another in the past, so this is an old song to many of you, I realize. As it happens, 45%, nearly half of this week's Rare Book School participants, and this includes everybody, students, faculty, evening lectures, and the entire Rare Book School staff, more than half of you, uh, or, sorry, nearly half of you are already friends of the Book Arts Press, the support group that among its many other virtues picks up the annual SLS, uh, the, the annual Rare Book School deficit. I am grateful to you all. Rare Book School could not exist without you. Now, to say 
that 45% of this week's Rare Book School participants are friends of the Book Arts Press is another way of saying <laughs> that 55% of this week's participants are not friends of the Book Arts Press. Those among you who are not yet friends and whose hearts are not made of stone <laughs> will find easy-to-read forms inviting them to become friends in the racks on the cabinet in the hallway outside the Book Arts Press suite. But back to the progress of the Book Arts Press itself. The goal of building up the Book Arts Press collections of teaching materials proceeded on several fronts in the 1970s and 80s. We began the systematic acquisition of leather and cloth bindings arranged on the shelf in chronological order to facilitate the study of changes in binding styles. Since we weren't interested in the subject of these books, but only in their bindings, the collection grew rapidly because the books were cheaply acquired. You can see the results of our acquisitiveness in the upper and lower shelves in the rotunda. We collected prints of all kinds, showing various kinds of illustration processes, trying wherever possible to get 12, or 12 times something, 24, 36, trying to get 12 examples from the same book or other source that could be protected in polyester enclosures, assembled into packets, and then used in class by up to 12 students or pairs of students and their instructors. Condition was of little important to us and subject even less. So, whereas other people bought lions, we bought mice. Where they bought roses, we bought dandelions. And again, the collection grew rapidly. At the moment, there are 371 illustration packets. We put together paper and typography packets, again, each containing 12 or more samples of a particular kind of paper or representative of a particular kind of printing or typeface. We assembled examples of different genres of books, a yellowback, a big little book, a blue and gold binding, a Cottonian library book, and so on. We call it 3D Carter, and you can see it in the Book Arts Press's classroom during the reception that follows this talk. We commissioned a special paper mold from Timothy Moore of Paragon Paper Molds, a mold that has trudged from class to class this week with its usual uh, briskness designed to show techniques of construction and the difference between antique laid, double-faced laid, and wove. We persuaded Stan Nelson of the Division of Graphic Arts, Smithsonian Institution, to sell us one of his type molds and to show us how to use it. We bought whole leather and parchment skins, sheep, calf, and goat. We assembled a collection of descriptive bibliographies, good and old, new and bad, and shelved them next to copies of the books that were described in these bibliographies. We collected multiple copies of the same book to facilitate the study of issue and state. For example, we now own 30-something copies of the first edition of Whittier's Tent on the Beach, thanks to Michael Winship, again, who presented us with a starter set of nine copies some years ago. We also bought new books, a working reference library of secondary materials, two essential shelves of books on bookbinding, two shelves of books on typography, four shelves of books on illustration processes, three shelves on the history of printing, a shelf of books on paper, and so forth, trying to restrict these collections ruthlessly to books currently useful and constantly needed. Eventually, we were able to get press room copies of practically all the books listed in my descriptive bibliography course's extensive reading lists, as well as a great many others recommended by various rare book school instructors. And you can see these books tonight, uh, those that 
who the faculty isn't arguing over, on the upper shelves of the Book Arts Press classroom in the west and north wall and in the west and northwest walls of the room. The Book Arts Press collections were regularly enhanced by the generosity of various libraries and grain book dealers and collectors who gave us their dogs and disasters. Early on, Bruce McKittrick, one of our most faithful donors, gave us various illustrated books or parts of books, many rescued from a dumpster after a basement cleaning operation in Philadelphia. Dr. Kenneth Rappaport sent us and continues to send us whole boxes of books on several occasions, some of them in collector's bindings, and an uncommon circumstance among Book Arts Press book collections in collector's condition. Another shipment, and a very good one it was, arrived just last week. Jonathan Hill, the bookseller, sent us a steady stream of books in interesting bindings. Elizabeth Riley gave us the Baskerville Bible and many other books. Gifts came from both individuals and institutions. In the mid-1980s, for example, the Library of Union College gave us, through the good offices of Ruth Ann Evans, the two defective volumes it owned of the three-volume 1596 Hamburg Polyglot Bible. Many of its woodcuts had been cut out, the paper was in terrible condition, and the contemporary bindings in still worse shape. But, like the Bedouin and his camel, we've tried to make good use of every part of this gift. Sets of leaves assembled in groups of 12 for the various teaching packets serve to provide examples of late 16th century paper, watermarks, wormholes, damp staining, woodcuts, decorative initials, rules, and various kinds and sizes of type and typography. The descriptive bibliography class saw them on Tuesday in opening number one of the Desbib packets as an example of the light and dark alternating patterns in laid paper produced before 1750 in the hand-pressed period. We've constantly discovered new uses for these from these two volumes of the Hamburg Polyglot, and even with slightly less than two-thirds of the whole book present, we had a great many leaves to work with. The press room's biggest gift came in 1989 through the good offices of Michael Turner and the Bodleian Library, books and other unwanted items in a collection that had been owned by the Sandgard family in Lancashire and turned over to the Bodleian Library now about 30 years ago. The Sandgards were fascinating. They were a brother and two sisters. They were born in the house that they all died in. None of them married. They preferred each other's company, they said, to that of anyone else. And they read, indeed bought, and then read everything, and then kept it. The uh, brother died, and one by one, the two sisters. And it emerged uh, largely because of a friendship that Michael Turner had formed with the family. He was from, from that part of the country. It emerged that they had given their book collections to the Bodleian with instructions that they could keep what they wanted, but any other books in the collection, books that they didn't want, should be given away rather than sold. And the Bodleian used this collection uh, allowing various librarians from other institutions to go in and take whatever they wanted as thank you presents for institutions that had done them favors. Notably, Robert Rosenthal of the University of Chicago, who housed the Harding Collection in Regenstein Library for quite a while before it could be removed to the Bodleian. Eventually, I was allowed in, and the result uh, was remarkably beneficial to our collections. 
incomplete books of all kinds. You've seen many of them in museum this week. You've seen the Sandgard uh, bookplate, perhaps. Uh, odd volumes, incomplete maps, prints, pre-World War II penguins, disbound Elzevirs, uh, the, the lists, it goes on and on and on. It occupied 12, excuse me, it occupied 21 large cartons when I finished, uh, shipped, thank heavens, uh, to America through the kindness of Jack Walsdorf by, uh, by Blackwell's at no expense to us because it was so much that we really couldn't even have afforded at the time to have them sent here. A similarly large gift came from UCLA in 1991. That was 35 large boxes caused by the necessity to uh, disband the dismal swamp at UCLA's Powell Library because of earthquake damage to the building and a complete renovation that it evoked. And many of our Lucilles came from that collection. Two pragmatic reasons prompted the creation of Rare Book School, one internal and one external. The internal reason, in the 1980s, Columbia University's central administration experienced a recrudescence of its long-standing recurring inclination to close the School of Library Service. Such an unfashionable discipline. Such a small school. Librarians. And I was casting about for projects that would give the school in general and the rare book program in particular a broader base of support so as to make us that much more difficult to kill. Nice try. <laughs> the external reason. By the early 1980s, I was becoming increasingly concerned by a growing groundswell of irritation among American rare book librarians over the rapid growth of what had become known as the Columbia Mafia. Resentment of the clubby graduates of the SLS rare book master's program, all busily doing business and partying together, nominating each other for offices in the professional associations, which they invariably got, preferring graduates of the program when they hired new personnel, and generally, outsiders claimed, praising each other's superior educations and promoting themselves at the expense of all those who had not been blessed by a Columbia Library School education. A non-credit rare book school seemed a useful mechanism for opening up education for rare books to a broader clientele than our own master students and opening it up on a less restrictive basis than could be provided by any formal degree program, whether at Columbia or anywhere else. The first Rare Book School, Rare Book School 1983, offered eight courses, each taught by two instructors, because I was then under the impression that no single person could teach six hours a day, five days a week. Two courses per week for four weeks, with a theoretical capacity 16 times 8 of 120 students, 113 enrolled. In 1984, Accordingly, Rare Book School expanded to 20 courses held over a six-week period, including some half-day courses taught by one instructor. We stopped offering half-day courses in 1988 because the instructors of the half-day courses invariably expanded them into the other half of the day with field trips, <laughs> individual counseling sessions, and homework assignments. And none of us who were present at the time will ever forget one student in particular who had in the morning Felix Oyens teaching the 15th century book from 9 o'clock, well, it was supposed to be until 12, but Felix did not stop, usually until 5 of 1, when the next class in his classroom began showing up. Indeed, 
it was this poor man's next classroom. All he had to do was sit there and recover for five minutes before having five hours of textual editing with Tom Tansel. <laughs> he thought he would die. <laughs> Martin Antonetti joined the Rare Book School staff in 1984 as assistant director, remaining to the school's great profit through 1989 when his duties as librarian of the Grolier Club precluded his uh, working, taking five weeks out of his schedule in the summer. He was succeeded in that post by David Ferris, who sends his regards and regrets to you all. The Harvard Law School Library is returning to Langdell Hall after a major renovation of the facilities, and there are no leaves in the Harvard Law School this summer in the library. Rare book schools in recent years have been variations of the pattern established in 1984 and 1985. About two dozen courses offered a four-week period surrounded by a midway of public lectures and related events. Rare book school produced lion-infested t-shirts and aprons of various colors and designs and a rare book school coffee mug. By the late 1980s, the school had become a well-established mechanism serving the continuing education needs of a number of related rare book professions. Rare book school graduates routinely became friends of the Book Arts Press, thus increasing the financial base for the development of the press room collections, and rare book school was itself an incentive for the development of these collections because of the very much larger numbers of persons able to benefit from them than had been the case when their use was restricted to the 20 or 30 students in the regular SLS master's program at any given moment within a special interest in rare books. In 1980, I became assistant dean of the School of Library Service in a ploy to keep the rare book program at Columbia after I'd been denied tenure by the university's central administration, clearly emerging as one of my special friends, the Columbia University Central Administration. In this instance, it was concerned over a continuing slow decline in SLS's enrollment, not in the rare book program, which was expanding, but in the school as a whole. Robert Wedgworth became dean of the school in 1985, and in a by no means unrelated development, a year later I became an assistant. I became a tenured associate professor in the school, acquired a pair of offices on the sixth floor of Butler, and hired my first full-time assistant to help me run the rare book program and its various associated cottage industries. Michael Bowe was my first assistant, succeeded in 1987 by Howard Senzel. Richard Noble was my assistant for three years until October 90 when he was succeeded first by Molly Weigel and then by Catherine Reagan. Beginning in the fall of 1989, SLS expanded its master's program from 36 to 48 points from a year to a year and a half, increasing its duration from two semesters plus a summer term to four semesters. The number of required courses was increased from three to five, but this expansion still left students with 11 elective courses, an increase of two over the former, over the former system. Only a relatively few students were able to take advantage of the increase, however, because despite a rapidly expanding enrollment, the trustees of the university voted in June 1990 to phase out the programs of the School of Library Service, and SLS admitted its last two-year class in the fall of that year. Why did SLS close? The most immediate reason was a simple one, space. Columbia University's Morningside campus occupies less than 40 acres. Many people, when they hear that, say, 40 acres? Where did they have 40 acres? But it's 40 acres. 
In, in Virginia, it's called a parking lot, 40 acres. 40 acres is a small is a small fraction of the size of the primary campuses of even the smallest of peer institutions. The University of Chicago's main campus has 168 acres, University of Pennsylvania 260, UCLA 400 and something. The grounds of the University of Virginia cover more than 4,000 acres. Various university uh, central administration actions and postures at Columbia had made it clear that the Columbia University libraries could never expect to get any significant additional space in the Morningside Heights campus for its collection or its activities, a restriction that encouraged the cannibalistic longings of the Columbia University Library for the area, perhaps 4% of the, of the building's usable space, <coughs> occupied in the library by the School of Library Service in quarters which had been built for it in 1934. Without the support of Elaine Sloan, then and now Columbia's university librarian, support which we did not have, the school had little chance of remaining either in Butler or indeed on campus at all. The closing of the school was formally recommended to the trustees of the university by provost then and now Jonathan Cole on the basis of hastily assembled and unreviewed factual evidence that the school bitterly contested just before the end of the spring semester, 1990, according to a time schedule that made it virtually impossible for the school to mount a campaign to defend itself. The trustees voted to close the school less than two months after Cole made his recommendation. Why was it necessary to use kangaroo court tactics to destroy a school whose budget was less than a third of 1% of the university budget operating in the black? The universities and the school's historians must answer the larger questions that these questions pose about the integrity of the decision-making process at Columbia. As it was, the nature and style of these actions precluded any possibility whatever that the rare book program would stay at Columbia after the closing of the school, despite intimations from Lowe Library that a separate piece between the program and the university could be arranged. In the fall of 1990, the Rare Book Program publicly announced in its newsletter that it was looking for a new home elsewhere. And shortly after, it found one at the University of Virginia. UVA has had a long tradition of prominence in bibliographical studies. The Bibliographical Society of the University was founded in 1947 by Fredson Bowers, who was for many years a faculty member here. The book collector Linton Massey and then UVA rare book librarian John Cook Wiley were also present at the birth. Bowers, author of uh, the book You Know Best, Principles of <laughs> Descriptive Bibliography, published in 1949, was the founding editor of the Society's Distinguished Annual Studies in Bibliography, now continuing under the editorship of Professor David Vandermeulen at the University of Virginia. In 1991, the celebrated book collector C. Waller Barrett completed his gift to the university of a collection of rare books and manuscripts in American literature that many of you have seen books from this week, already on deposit uh, in Alderman Library and valued at more than $25 million, a figure that most people thought was very low. In June 1990, Catherine Morgan, curator of rare books in the UVA Department of Special Collections, uh, suggested both to her superiors in Alderman and to me that there might be a fit between the rare book program at Columbia and the University of Virginia. One thing led to another on two trips to Charlottesville, and by the end of 1990, it was apparent to those immediately concerned that the rare book program was going to be heading south, helped along 
by godparents Edmund Berkeley, then head of special collections at UVA, Ray France, then university librarian, Gene Hammer, then and now director of development, and Kenton Stubbs in particular, then and now associate university librarian here, and also and in particular by Raymond Nelson, then dean of the university's faculty of arts and sciences. Dean Nelson is a book collector. My appointment as university professor and honorary curator of special collections began here in July 1992, and the first UVA Rare Book School was held in 1993. Inevitably, there were major changes in both the Rare Book Program and the Book Arts Press as the result of its move to the University of Virginia. There is no library school in Virginia. Indeed, there is no library school in the state of Virginia although we are surrounded by them in North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, the District of Columbia, and Maryland. On the other hand, the principal educational thrust of the Rare Book Program, especially in its final Columbia years, was Rare Book School, not the SLS Master's Level Program in Rare Books. And the Book Arts Press's publications and most of its other activities have had an increasingly large and wide audience not restricted to any single discipline or profession. The University of Virginia, I hope you'll agree, provides a superb platform for the present and future activities of the Book Arts Press and its friends, admirers, and servants. It will be clear from what I've said tonight that the fortunes of the Book Arts Press and of Rare Book School are closely intertwined. The Book Arts Press is the umbrella group. It is a not-for-profit corporation chartered in the Commonwealth of Virginia and it owns most of the equipment, books, and other teaching materials Rare Book School students will see this year in their classrooms, in the Peabody and Monroe Hall. It's very much at home here, but the press is not an administrative division of the university, nor does it have any formal relationship with the university. It is an independent entity with its own board of trustees. The present trustees of the Book Arts Press are Mark Antonetti, curator of Rare Books at Smith College, James Davis, Rare Books Librarian at UCLA, Ellen Dunlap, President of the American Antiquarian Society, Peter Herdrick, Senior Producer of Inside Edition TV, uh, of the Inside Edition TV program, but also uh, the director of all of the Book Arts Press videotapes. Catherine Morgan, Curator of Rare Books here at UVA, and Nicholas Pickwode, back in independent book conservation practice in the United Kingdom after some years working in this country. These trustees are assisted by an advisory group that includes William Barlow, Jr., Peter Graham, William Joyce, and Catherine Kais Lieb. Perhaps the greatest friend of the Book Arts Press and of Rare Book School is the University of Virginia. UVA currently makes a very substantial contribution indeed towards the well-being of these operations. In the first instance, as regards my own salary and that of my assistant, Jennifer Meyer, that is to say, in simple terms, Rare Book School is not billed for any part of my teaching for Rare Book School. And since I teach about 20% of the students in the school, the savings to Rare Book School is considerable. Considerable as this contribution to RBS is, UVA makes an even more obvious and certainly more substantial contribution by providing the Book Arts Press with quarters and buildings at the center of the central grounds of the university. The Book Arts Press's ongoing exhibition program in the Rotunda provides an eloquent example of the extent of the support we've had not only from UVA in general, but from the university library in particular. 
for the rotunda is, as it has always been, a library space. We're grateful to Karen Wittenborg, UVA's university librarian, for her continued unflagging support of the Book Arts Press, Rare Book School, and its friends. Well, now that we're 25 and all grown up, what are we going to do with ourselves? What are we doing for you lately? Master classes. There comes a time when the resources of a single institution are no longer adequate to provide instruction across a broad range of subjects. And in recent years, we have begun a program in which a difficult subject is taught by the appropriate instructor at the perfect place for it as regards library resources. This began two years ago when Paul Needham taught a course in 15th century books at the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York, and it continued last year, excuse me, earlier this year, when Needham repeated a variant of this course at the Huntington Library. Albert Derolet has taught codicology at Princeton, and a number of related courses are in the works. Stay tuned. We had more applications for Rare Book School this year than we have ever had before by a considerable margin, probably because of the increased utility of the Internet in advertising everything. And we turned down, as a result, more people in certain courses in particular than we've ever turned down before. Sue Allen had three times as many applicants as there were spaces in her course. She turned down some people for the third year in a row. The situation was comparable in my book illustration course and Nicholas Pickwode's binding course left a veil of tears all over America. <laughs> I've asked Sue Allen and Nicholas Pickwode if they would be willing to teach additional sections of their course in the winter so that we can catch up. And both have, in principle, agreed. Sue Allen has already agreed to date. She'll be teaching her uh, celebrated course in 19th century cloth bindings uh, during our spring vacation in March of 1998, which I believe is the week starting about March 10th. I will be teaching my book illustration course both in January and I think opposite Sue in March. Uh, Nicholas Picklode and I are still talking about dates, but it might be uh, against my book illustration course in its January version, which will probably be uh, about, uh, uh, well, it'll be probably in the first half of January in any event. And we will continue uh, to run extra sections of these and other courses until we catch up the backlog on these courses, because it does nobody any good when people are turned away from courses they need. I was greatly pleased when Roderick Steinhauer told me this uh, uh, during week one of Rare Book School that he proposed to turn over the assets of the American Friends of the Plantin Moretus uh, Museum to the Book Arts Press. This will give us the rights to the making of the Renaissance book and the possibility of producing a film which I hope I will have courage to call the remaking of a Renaissance book. <laughs> Good as it is, clearly it needs to be remade in color. And I think, I believe it will not be necessary to go to Antwerp to do that. One of my own preoccupations this year has been the, uh, and for the past couple of years, has been uh, to establish an undergraduate exhibition program. Now, many of you have much to do with exhibition programs and with undergraduates, and you know that 
as regards such programs, undergraduates are like mayflies. They're there just for an instant. There isn't time enough to do an exhibition in four years if you're spending the first part of the year getting to know your way around, getting to know enough of some kind of a subject so you can do an exhibition in anything, and then finding library persons to relate to. There are many undergraduates indispensable to the well-being of university libraries, but they spend most of their time being paid to run the photocopier and other such duties. It's impossible to take these people away to do an exhibition. My own position is a fortunate one in that I teach undergraduates and have access to library resources of a much broader nature than would be normally the case with faculty. We had our first major exhibition run by a student, curated by a student, last year, as many of you know, with the Armed Services uh, Editions exhibition that uh, was up during Rare Book School 1996. The curator of that exhibition, Dan Miller, was in fact the curator of that exhibition, something virtually impossible uh, to arrange for undergraduates under normal circumstances. It was his show. He wrote the catalog. He chose the items. He gave a lecture on the show. He published his recollections of how he did the show. And it was uh, an enormously satisfying experience, at least for me and for those concerned on the uh, teaching side of the operations, and I hope to do much more of that in the future. The biggest single lack of the uh, Rare Books program here and of the Book Arts Press is inadequate cataloging of our collections. It is a miracle that we find as much as we do during Rare Book School. As you know, uh, there is an endless web of materials being ferried from room to room to room throughout Rare Book School, and each week we lose a little more. And I mean that quite literally. We simply can't find it. We need much better systems of cataloging, and that's going to take funds. And uh, it will, I think, be the occasion of my first attempt to raise external funds. The Book Arts Press has never uh, gone after uh, institutional foundation funds of any kind because it's too much trouble. But I think it's now uh, time, now that we're all grown up, to head in that direction. <clears throat> I hope that you will take at least a quick look at some of the things we've been doing so far in the exhibition presently on in the Rotunda, if you've not already done so. It rhapsodizes on a number of the themes of this lecture. And I hope you will now join me for a drink at the Book Arts Press. Just one minute, Harry. There's a final piece of business here tonight. On Monday evening, my friend Roger Stoddard conjured up this image of the Book Arts Press lecturers standing here in a line, reaching out to Terry to congratulate him. I've known Roger a long time, you know, before the beard, the bolo. He's quite a conjurer. But tonight I'll do him better because I have here for Terry a collection of letters that I've gathered from the Book Arts Press lecturers to celebrate, oh to congratulate, oh to thank you, Terry, for 25 years. This turning 25 is very wearing. It's been going on all summer. <laughs> Tomorrow, Rare Book School ends. The 
parties over the next 25 years begin. But tonight, let's party on. <laughs> but let's let Terry know how much we love him and thank him. still on? I consider myself to be very difficult to outwit, but this really is the first I've heard of this. Well, let's go read letters.